Bethel Church, you ready for Romans? Well, the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step, and today we begin with that step in this teaching series, and I honestly feel intimidated to uh, tackle Romans. It has been my white whale uh, over 25 years in pastoral ministry. Uh, It is the Mount Everest of the books of the Bible. There is no higher peak, there is no harder climb, there is no better view than the top that Romans takes us to. And uh, you might say, well, why is it so challenging? It is the most theologically rich and exegetically intricate book of the entire Bible. It is also quite long. It's 16 chapters long. This has led some very eminent uh, pastors to take the tapestry apart fabric or a little little, uh, thread by thread. And uh, to give you some ideas of what has been done, Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, you know, one of the best preachers of the last century, he preached through Romans. It took him 13 years uh, to preach through Romans. And the collection of those sermons required 14 volumes in the commentary set. That's a long series. (laughs) John Piper, more recently, preached 225 sermons uh, over the course of eight years to get through the book of Romans. We will not be in it that long, not even near that long, but it gives you an idea of the treasure trove that Romans is and what you can do if you just really, really, really pick it apart. If you had Uh, If you were marooned on an island and you could pick one book of the Bible that you got to have and just one, you would be a wise Christian to either choose the Gospel of John or the book of Romans. So our approach to this is going to be somewhat like a family trip. A family trip to the Grand Tetons or a family trip to Yosemite where some portions of the trip you drive a little bit faster, okay? You're kind of getting from A to B and you, you go a little bit faster. Uh, some places, are, we're gonna slow down because the view starts getting like really, really good and you wanna, you wanna take it in. Some places, we are going to stop at the scenic overlook. We're going to lay out a picnic, we're gonna take selfies, and we are going to just savor the amazing views. Now, what we're doing with Romans is we are actually dividing it into five sections, and each one of these series is like a series within the series, and this way we can kind of take it apart in in parts, and to help you visualize where we are in the book of of Romans, uh, this is going to be our graphic for the entire series, and the way that we're going to build this is we're actually going to, by the way, that's the Roman Colosseum, in case some of you are wondering, what's that a picture of? And I hope that you recognize that Roman Colosseum. But uh, as we go, each of these sub-series is going to build like so until we have gone all the way through the book of Romans. Clever, don't you think? We've got some great people that help make that kind of thing happen. And so we're thankful for that. Our approach is going to be known according to what's known as expository preaching. Okay, Expository or expositional preaching. Preaching. So if, if you continue to come, and I hope you will, you're going to notice a pattern. We're going to begin with the text. 
We're going to read it. We are going to ask basic questions about it, like uh, what is the context uh, within the, the, the letter? What is the context uh, that Paul is writing from? What is the, what's going on with the people that he's writing to? What is the flow of the, of the argument? What do the sentences mean? How do they correlate to the broader thing? We're gonna let all these kinds of things, because we want to get the text right. Then we are going to bridge in what is known as application to the world that we live in now and to say, what does this mean for us today? How can I apply this to my life? Expository preaching. We do this because we believe that when Paul wrote Romans, and he actually wrote it along with a, uh, he had a, uh, a writer that assisted him um, that he talks about in Romans 16, uh, but we ascribe it to Paul. But when Paul wrote uh, Romans, he did so by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which is why it is in the canon of the Bible is that we believe that the Holy Spirit inspired what Paul wrote. And so the words that we're reading are, yes, the words of Paul, but they are sourced in, truly, God himself, and that God has spoken these words to us. And so since we take God seriously, we take his word very seriously. And we want to make sure that we get it right, that we interpret it accurately. And we do so very, very carefully. This is likely the only time that I will preach through the book of Romans in my whole life. It is probably, for most of you, probably the only series in the book of Romans that you are going to hear in your entire life. I say that we make the most of it, okay? That we make the most of it. And one inspiring example, inspiring example in our church is there's two guys in our church that are going to memorize Romans as we go. So you just take that as a throwdown challenge, okay? You got two guys that are doing that. What are you gonna do in Romans? God has used Romans in incredibly profound ways down through the history of the church. For example, the church's greatest theologian, Augustine, was a man who was totally into sexual promiscuity and lust. He reads Romans. He is converted to Christianity. Martin Luther, the famous Martin Luther, uh, was converted primarily because he read in Romans 1 that the just shall live by faith. And God used that in his life and used him to spark the world-changing reformation. John Wesley read Luther's preface to his commentary on Romans and was converted as a Christian. These and many, many others. We're going to get to heaven and find out the impact that this one book has had uh, on the world. It is arguably the most influential section of the most influential book in all of human history, the Bible. Here's some things that some people have said. Here's Luther on Romans. Romans is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much and the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. Calvin, man's only righteousness is the mercy of God in Christ when it is offered by the gospel and received by faith. If we have gained a true understanding of this epistle, we have an open door to all the most profound treasures of scripture. These and many other things. Romans is worthy of this kind of 
praise. And I hope that God blesses this series. I can tell you as I stand here today, if I could pick one series of all of the series of my entire life of pastoring and teaching that I would want God's divine blessing and unction upon, it is this one. I hope this goes down as the best. The best. So let's get into this now by doing what we typically do when we begin a book series, and that is that we spend some time on the background, okay? The background and the backstory of the book of Romans. A few things that you gotta realize. First one is that this is a letter. It's a letter. We often talk about the books of the Bible, and we get what we mean by that, but in reality, what we call books fall into all kinds of literary genres. So you've got poetry, and you've got music, you've got narrative, there are gospels and apocalyptic language, and what we have before us here is a letter. We sometimes call it the epistle to the Romans, maybe your Bible says that even, An epistle just means letter. It is a letter. Paul wrote 13 of these letters in the New Testament, and so it leads to the question, well then who is Paul? Okay, so let's talk about Paul. Paul was a, uh, his, his Jewish name was Saul, and in his, uh, prior to converting to Christianity, he was a Old Testament scholar who was educated in the Harvard universities of the day, who became within the ranks of the highest order of Judaism known as the Pharisees, he became one of the key leaders of the Pharisees. We know this because after the resurrection, after Jesus resurrected, and as Christianity is taking hold there in uh, Israel, the Pharisees turn to to Saul uh, to be the one that leads their campaign against Christianity. He was he was there helping in the martyrdom of Stephen, the very first Christian. He jailed Christians. He was violent towards Christians. Until one day he was on, we call it the road to Damascus, and Jesus himself appeared to Saul, and in that appearing, Saul was converted. He was converted to becoming a Christian. The one who was the most violent against Christianity becomes, down in history, its greatest proponent. And he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles, sent by Jesus outside of the Jewish circles to bring the gospel to the world. And uh, Paul writes this letter with the assistance of a scribe uh, to this church in Rome, okay? So this is a letter that was written for a purpose, and uh, we, we believe, we're not sure, but we believe that Paul was in the city of Corinth. So here's a little bit more of the backstory. If you put this map up, we know that Paul was collecting an offering throughout all the churches that he had planted because there was a terrible uh, trial that was going on in Jerusalem, and the Christians there were suffering, uh, poverty-stricken, and so he raises money to take an offering to Jerusalem to give to the Jewish Christians there. On his way to Jerusalem, he is in Corinth for three months. And we believe that's the time when he wrote this letter from Corinth to the city of Rome over here in Italy. Now, why did he write the letter? This is something that is somewhat 
argued, but we know from the the letter of Romans that Paul wanted to go to Rome. He says this in chapter 15, verse 24. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a little while. Now, people talk about how did a church ever get to Rome? Because Paul had never been to Rome. We don't know of any other apostle that went to Rome, and yet there clearly is a church thriving in the city of Rome. Well, one thing that we know is on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2 tells us that there were visitors from Rome in the city of Jerusalem. And so the the speculation is, is that they were converted to Christianity. They take the gospel and a heart for church planting back with them to Rome, and without any apostolic presence, a church is started there in the city of Rome. Now Paul writes this letter to these Romans, and he says, I'm hoping to stop by and to see you. Because his real goal is he wants to take the gospel to Spain. Nobody had ever been to Spain. Paul had a heart to minister where nobody else had ever been. He wants to go to Spain, and he sees Rome as being a kind of base of operations for him to be funded, resourced, helped on his way to take the gospel uh, to Spain. So why is that important? Because you look at the letter of Romans and you have this incredible doctrinal statement. I mean, he could have written them and said, hey, you know, I'm hoping to stop by. Does somebody have a room? I'm on my way to Spain. Thank you very much. Instead, he writes 16 chapters of the most theologically rich biblical doctrine to be found in the Bible. Why? Well, here's the backstory and why it helps so much. By this time, Paul is really, Saul, by the way, he went by his Roman name, Paul. He's famous now throughout the world, but not always for the right reasons. He's a very controversial figure. There's all of this speculation about him. Is he really Jewish? Is he for the Gentiles? There's this kind of scuttlebutt about him. And so he wants to go to Rome. He needs their support. What better way to garner their support than to write them a letter within which is the deepest dive, greatest explanation of the gospel in all of human history? Maybe that'll, you know, Find him a place in the, in the church somewhere. So to sort of give this, a, uh, to illustrate this, this would be like showing that you deserve to be on the local high school golf team by setting the course record at Pebble Beach during the U.S. Open. I kind of like that illustration. Imagine the Romans, like, oh, we have a letter Who's it from? This Paul guy. I've heard about him. Let's open it up and let's read it. Let's see what it says. They read and they read and they read and they read and they slow down and they're like, they're reading all this thing in Rome. And and they get to the end of it and they say, well, what do you think? Should we let this Paul feller preach here? The letter he wrote was pretty good. Aye, it was. I'm continuing the Scottish theme from the video. I think maybe we'll let him preach here after he writes the letter to Romans. He'll be fine. Let's have him come. With that, let's get into this wonderful letter, the letter to the Romans. 
And we begin with this initial section, which I'm calling Greetings and Gospel. Here we go. Are you ready? Verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ, Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. We're just going to stop right there. Okay? Stop right there. You'll notice at the beginning of the letter, he begins with his name, Paul. And uh, this was the custom of the day. When you wrote a letter, you said your name, you said who you were writing to, and then you said, like, greetings. We do the opposite, right? We put our names at the end of letters. So you might get a letter and you go, who is this from? And you got to get all the way to the end. Oh, it's from Tommy. Well, they settled it right away. You knew it was from, you knew uh, who it was sent to. He gives his name. He expands on this basic letter-writing template, and he fills it with Christian truth. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, the, le- the, the language that Paul wrote this letter in originally was the language of Greek. Koine Greek is what it's called. And you're going to hear me over the course of this series Sometimes referring to things that are in the Greek that maybe you don't notice. For example, the first seven verses that we look at here in the Greek are one sentence. That's a long sentence, isn't it? But things like that that you don't necessarily pick up on. Or like what I'm going to do right now. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. We look at that, we go, oh, okay, we kind of get he's a servant. It actually is the Greek word doulos which could be translated and maybe should be translated slave, bondservant. This is not not somebody who is your waiter. This is somebody who is a slave to Christ Jesus. And right away now, we see that Paul is stepping into the culture of Rome in a most countercultural way. Why? Again, we're talking about Rome. Rome is the capital of the world and was for centuries. This is Rome where power and the struggle for power amongst the Caesars and the senators, they're still doing stories and writing books about all of the political intrigue and all of the power struggles. It is probably the city in all of human history that is most consumed with power and status, Rome. This makes Washington, D.C. today look like recess at the elementary school. Like, this is serious power. This is Julius Caesar. This is beware the Ides of March. This is uh, et tu, Brute. This is things that 2,000 years later we still talk about. The power of Rome. In that city, you wanted to be a Caesar. You wanted to be a senator. You didn't want to be a slave. If you were a slave, you hoped nobody noticed. Status was incredibly important. Dulos of Jesus, slave of Jesus. Paul has no qualms taking the title slave and applying it to his devotion to Christ. From my perspective, I am a slave to him. I wonder if we would even feel comfortable in our day talking in language like that. Who am I? I am a slave 
to Christ. And yet then he says, called to be an apostle. Doulos of Jesus, called to be an apostle. And what does it mean to be an apostle in the church? The, the apostles are the foundation, their teachings, and Jesus is the ultimate foundation of the church. The apostles are the highest human authority in the church. The apostles, their writings, we still read them, we study them, we hold them above us, and we say the teachings of the apostle guide us in all matters of faith and practice. This is a big deal to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. But he doesn't lead with his apostolic authority. He doesn't lead with his status. He leads with his adulos. And we see even in this that he's, he's wanting to balance these Romans because Roman types, they always want to put people on a pedestal. They always want to elevate people and to admire them and to see them as being celebrities. But the, if, if there's a celebrity other than Jesus in the church, it is Paul. But the celebrity says, I'm no celebrity, I'm a doulos. Beware of putting anybody on a pedestal. Beware of putting any elder, pastor, teacher, preacher on a pedestal in your heart. What are we? At best, we are slaves and servants of Christ. We're all the same. We're all pursuing the same goal. It's just so fascinating to me to see Paul here. He, it would have been so easy. We would, be, we would tend to sort of roll in with our, you know, like, hey, it's Paul. Maybe you've heard of me. I'm kind of... I'm kind of a big deal, you know? And we've never met, and I'm hoping to come, but I am an apostle, you know? He doesn't do that. He comes in as a servant. There's a good lesson in there for all of us. Set apart for the gospel of God. And here now we are introduced to a word that will dominate the entire letter of Romans, this word, gospel. You maybe, if you've been a Christian, you're probably familiar with that word, but to realize that it is a summary word in the New Testament, and especially the way that Paul uses it, it is a summary word for both the work of Jesus and that saving, that essential saving message of the cross and the declaration and the ministry of that saving message. In fact, the word gospel literally means good news or glad tidings. Right there in gospel, you see that it is a message to, believe, to be believed and a message to be declared. It is not a secret message. We are, the church is never to be a secret society with these little secret handshakes and things we believe, but we don't want anybody to know. No, we want everybody to know. The gospel is good news. It is to be declared See also here that it is the gospel of God. This is not Paul's gospel. It is not a Jewish gospel. It is not a Gentile gospel. It is God's gospel. This is a God thing. In fact, he's going to say in verse 16, he's going to say that this gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. It is not rooted in sort of a human story, human drama, human ideas and philosophies. It is the gospel of God of God unto salvation for all who believe. And we just see this wonderful word. It is, it, is, it is a word that describes the person and the character of God. The gospel is rooted in the character of God. That's why the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. This message is 
it's God's message. This is God's thing. It's God's salvation. And one, one theologian I read, he said, if you want to know the key word in the book of Romans, it's the word God. <laughs> it's, a, it's a letter about God, primarily. And the gospel is God's gospel. The world is God's world. And salvation is God's work. And the gospel is God's gospel. It is not ours. Which... He promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And we're going to find Paul referring oftentimes in the letter of Romans to the Old Testament. He is an Old Testament scholar after all. He's going to refer to the Old Testament and to show that the gospel that he is preaching is the same gospel in the New Covenant that it was in the Old Covenant. And even point to Abraham and say, He wasn't saved by the sign of circumcision, the sign of the covenant. He believed by faith prior to that, that the gospel is something that is rooted in the Old Testament scriptures. And by the way, I have to say this. I just want you to note here that he calls them the holy scriptures, okay? The holy scriptures. What makes the the Bible, the scriptures is another word for the Bible, what makes the Bible holy? Is it because prophets wrote it? No, it is not. Who wrote the Bible? God wrote the Bible. God wrote the Bible through human prophets. And the reason those writings are holy is because God is holy. Okay, And that doctrine in church history will be developed into what is known as the inerrancy of Scripture. That the Bible is perfect and complete and authoritative because it is rooted in the character of God who is himself holy and perfect. Therefore, the Bible is trustworthy. The doctrine of inerrancy, which he here describes as holy scriptures. Concerning, verse three, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. How? By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Awesome verses. I, I, it makes me want to get, get my D. Martin Lloyd-Jones on right now and just you know, preach on the word the here because it's so good. Okay? This is how the series gets long. There's so much here. But these are awesome verses here. A concise statement in these two verses of basic Christian teaching. This leads people to think that this was actually a creed of the early church. And that what Paul is doing is he's building a bridge with them by affirming something that maybe they said in their public gatherings. Like the Apostles' Creed as another example. What better way to say, hey, I believe what you believe by quoting creeds that summarize what you believe and I believe that too. Let's walk through this very slowly. God spoke beforehand through the prophets who wrote Old Testament scriptures concerning God's son. Now, he is going to give a name to him in verse six and also in verse seven. Jesus Christ, our Lord. So he is talking here about Jesus, who is God's son and is descended from David, quote, according to the flesh. The Jews knew and understood that the Messiah was going to be of the lineage of David. He was going to be the son of David, born in the city of David, Bethlehem. He was going to be in the Davidic line, which Paul here says and describes as according to the flesh. 
And I'll just warn you right now, whenever you see flesh in Romans, it's a tough word to interpret because he uses it in different ways. Wait till we get to Romans 7. You're gonna love it and hate it at the same time, which is kind of the, that's Romans 7, uh, is the love and the hate. But I digress here because we'll get to that in 10 years. (laughs) So it's a hard word to translate, but what Paul is using is, is using the word flesh here to describe in a summary way Jesus' life and ministry in the flesh here on earth, his earthly ministry, okay? So he, his pedigree is Messiah as God's son. His life was fully human, and he lived in this flesh in weakness. But notice what happened. And was declared to be the son of God in power, notice that, according to the spirit of holiness, How? by his resurrection from the dead. So what we have here, Paul is describing really the two stages of Jesus' ministry. The one stage is his humiliation according to the flesh, his earthly ministry. So that while he was in this body, he was in a state of humiliation, a state of weakness. He slept, he was hungry, he was thirsty, he was beaten, he was scourged, he bled on the ground. It was a season of weakness in his earthly ministry. But he was declared to be the son of God in power. How? By the resurrection from the dead. And there we have that exaltation of Christ, that other thing, that that other stage of of his earthly ministry where he is no longer in weakness, he is no longer bleeding, he is no longer hungry and tired and under the foot of Pilate or whatever you want to say. He's no longer in that. He is now the son of God in power through his resurrection from the dead. Remember, this is God's gospel. This is a gospel that is not about Paul. He doesn't start right away talking about his life in ministry. He is talking about Christ. Now, one little burr here, if you read this, how was Jesus declared to be the son of God in his resurrection? I thought he always was the son of God. What do you mean he became the son of God after his resurrection? Yes, he was always the son of God. But one of the things we oftentimes miss in our Christology is to realize that when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, that God the Father bestows upon Jesus a new authority and a new glory, a new Power. That's why in Matthew 28, Jesus says to the disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Now go and make disciples. There was something that was new and different after the resurrection for Jesus than before. Yes, indeed. Before he was the son of God, humiliated in the flesh, incarnate in the flesh, in weakness, but now he has been resurrected to glory and he is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God. He is the son of God, not in weakness, he's the son of God in power. Okay? He is now in authority. He is now at the right hand of the Father. And so we see then that humiliation and exaltation. This is Christmas and Easter, celebrated by the Apostle Paul. Now you look at that and you say, wait a second, he ain't saying nothing about the cross. I think maybe the Apostle Paul missed something here. He didn't say nothing about the cross in his greetings here. Oh, my friend, you just keep reading. If you get to the end of Romans and you're disappointed in his theology of the atonement, you come talk to me. He's just getting started here. This is just the salutation. He's just sort of writing in a summary way. But even in the summary, he gets to Christ. 
He refers to him at the end of verse 4 and essentially the same in verse 7 as Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, if you've been a Christian a long time, you read that and you think, oh, yeah, that's what we call him. But you've got to realize, who is he writing to? He is writing to the Romans. He is writing to people that every day are living under the curios of the world, the Caesar of the world. Every day they're seeing the monuments to his glory. Their money has his picture on it. Their temples that are worshiping the Caesars of Rome, they are, the Caesar is Lord. And Paul writes here, Jesus Christ is Lord. The Romans, they were required to worship the Caesar, which is no big deal when you're already a polytheist, right? If you already have a pantheon of gods and the Caesar says, you gotta worship me, you go, okay, I got 15 other gods, now I got 16. No big deal, I can worship you too. They demanded worship of the emperor. Who was the Caesar when Paul wrote this letter? Ever hear of Nero? Nero, famous Roman Caesar, famous for being essentially a madman. He was a megalomaniac. He hated Christianity. Think of this, friends. Within seven years, the people that get this letter and read it are going to be impaled on poles in the city of Rome and lit on fire to light the streets. That's what Nero did to them. We have lampposts. You drive under a lamppost, you think, oh, look at the city of Crown Point or uh, Maryville, whatever, they got, a, they got a lamppost. In Rome, they lit the Christians on fire so that they could see at night. Within seven years, the people that opened this scroll and read this letter are going to be thrown by Nero to the lions in the very Colosseum that makes up our graphic for this series. They are going to be thrown to the lions and eaten in public as entertainment and amusement for the city of Rome. Within a few years, Paul, who writes the letter to the Romans, will be beheaded by Nero in the city of Rome itself. Nero is the king of the world and does jolly well whatever he wants to. But Nero was not God's son. Nero was not prophesied in Holy Scripture. Nero was not resurrected from the dead. Nero was Caesar, but he was not Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. The Scriptures say that he is Lord. His life showed that he is Lord. His resurrection proved that he is Lord. And what Paul is saying right here at the beginning is Roman Christians take heart. You are in a city that is famous in all of world history for Caesars and senators and temples and palaces and power and armies. But there is one who is on a higher throne than any Caesar of Rome has ever sat. And his throne is the throne of Christ, the Christ of God, the son of David, the Son of God, the eternal Savior, 
for all who believe in him. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Okay. Are things so different in the world that we live in today? Now, I'm unaware in Western society of any gods that have statuary like they did back then. But the same gods are worshipped in the culture that we live in. Is power important right now in the United States of America? Doesn't it seem to you like the political world is just ready to go? Why? Because of the lust for power in this world. Everyone wants to be Caesar. Is Christianity on the margins of our society right now? Is it super cool to be a Christian and believe in Jesus and follow the gospel? And like, is that like really, really awesome? No. Less and less awesome every day, it seems. Would it seem to you that the gospel of Jesus is disconnected from basic life, not particularly relevant, more and more with each passing day. So my fellow Romans, countrymen, we have to realize that this gospel that we believe and sing about, the the foundation of our church, it's not our gospel. This is God's gospel. The Savior is not He's he's God's Savior. He's God's Messiah. He's God's Son. The Lord that we serve is not a man-made authority. He is not a Caesar or a governor or a king or a president. He sits on the glory of authority, a throne that is his by right and by scripture and by fatherly decree. All authority is his. So what is our hope? in oppression and injustice that we see in the world around us. Jesus Christ is Lord. What is our comfort in trials and pain like the three members of our church and their families that we buried this week? Jesus Christ is Lord. What is our help in our struggle with sin? Who do we turn to? What seizure do we go to? Jesus Christ is Lord. What is the answer to the questions from Parkland, Florida? this week? Where do we go to supply something in the face of abject evil and horrific violence? There is a throne that is the highest throne, and the one that sits upon it died for evil and sin. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus is Lord. It's God's gospel He is God's son, he is our savior, he is Lord of all. That's not bad for just a greeting. He concludes the salutation with this, verse five, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Love that phrase, for the sake of his name among all the nations, the Jews, the Greeks, the Gentiles, the city of Corinth, the city of Jerusalem, the city of Rome, Spain, Indiana, among all the nations, for the sake of his name, we proclaim the gospel of God, which is that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. All praise be to him in this series and forevermore. Amen.